This afternoon, I may proclaim to you the Word of God as we find that in Ephesians 2, the rest of Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. After the proclamation of God's Word, we'll praise God with the words of Him. 52 stands as 1, 2, and 4. First, Ephesians 2, verse 11. Hear God's Word. Therefore, remember that you... Once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace." and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, one thing that has surprised me in the past while is the degree to which the word missional is considered to be somewhat controversial. I suppose it comes about because it's kind of a new word, and so immediately people are suspicious of it. And I suppose, too, that there's some controversy because different people think that it means different things. But I take it to mean, however, that missions and evangelism ought to be always a high priority among the people of God. That the goal of the church is not to be just a social club of like-minded people, but to be a body that effectively communicates to the people of its community in a language and a manner that draws them into the power of the gospel and the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. To me, the great challenge before the Canadian Reformed Federation between now and the day our Lord returns is to do on the home front the kind of things we do quite well in Brazil, in Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, and other places. The simple fact is that the majority of the unreached peoples in this world are not in far-off lands they are in the neighborhoods of the cities where we have churches. And the great challenge is to be as passionate and as focused about reaching out, them, out to them here as we are on what we used to call the mission fields. 
The truth is, the whole world today is a mission field until our, until our Lord Jesus Christ returns. And Christians and Christians alone have what it takes to get people on to the better world that's coming. I don't believe that our Lord Jesus Christ, when He gave the commission of Matthew 28 to go into all the world, was speaking about something the church would do once in a while when it was on some pet project or as an optional task that you might begin to do on a Tuesday evening or something like that. Rather, He was talking about an aspect of being church that was to be at its very core, its very heart, and its very purpose. The challenge of this commission is, is for a church to be as effective at, at making disciples of all nations and teaching obedience to everything that Jesus has commanded. The church is commanded to be a mother. I talk about the, you can't, have, you can't believe without having the mother as your church as the mother. Well, then this mother is to be as eager to welcome new children into her home as she is to nurture the children she already has. The task of the church is to preserve and increase. She is to look both within and without. So what does it take, uh, take for us to be such a church? Well, for one, it takes a tremendous insight into the nature of of the love command. We hear it every Sunday, don't we, with the Ten Commandments, to truly love your neighbor as yourself. And perhaps along with that, we need an appreciation for the many things that Paul says in the passage we have before us also this afternoon. God's Word comes to you under this theme. The Apostle Paul proclaims that Christ is the peace of the people of God. We'll talk about our Gentile past, we'll talk about our peacemaking Savior, and we'll talk about our Christian present. Brothers and sisters, also with this part of the second chapter to the Ephesians, it's a challenge for us to realize that Paul is speaking to us. We said this morning, and say it again, if you, like me, have grown up in a Christian home where you've heard the gospel since you were knee-high, praise God, then you might think, well, this chapter doesn't apply to me, and I should just turn the page on to the third chapter. You might say, I have no such past to remember. There never really was an extended period of time in which Jesus Christ was some foreigner to me. I have no great conversion story, so let's move on to the new, next chapter. But wait a moment, when we talked about it this morning, we came to the realization that there are only two categories in the church, especially in the early Christian church, and today too. You are either Jew or Gentile. You are either of Jewish stock or you are of Gentile stock. Yes, children born to believing parents are covenant children, but they are still either of Jewish or Gentile stock. The covenant doesn't make you Jewish. Paul makes the point there that all people, Jew or Gentile, are of themselves dead in sin. Apart from Christ, we are dead in sin. They don't just need a bit of help, they need resurrection. We need resurrection. Because of ourselves, we are dead. 
It's Romans 1, 2, and 3 with the climax of chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. And here, too, Paul is now addressing particularly those Gentiles. He turns his attention to, the, to those who are of Gentile heritage in, in Ephesus there. And most of them are first-generation converts, and therefore he speaks as he does. But I don't believe Paul is writing this text just for people with dramatic conversion stories, just for people who have a lot of evil and baggage in their past. The passage is calling on all of us to think about where we would be without God and without His grace in our lives. And so he's saying to you, regardless of whether you or your grandfather or your great-grandmother or whoever put you on this blessed Christian line, to think about this, where would you be without Christ? Maybe it's not that difficult because most children of believing parents have moments and periods in their lives when they are not so sure about the Christian faith, and they can imagine just walking away from it all and living apart from church and Christianity and whatever else. And Paul is not just saying, remember that once you lack knowledge of God, but Paul is saying, remember that at that time you were alienated from God. You were without faith. Where were you then, and where would you be today if you stayed on that path? He's calling all of us to appreciate all our present blessings by reflecting on where we would be if God's grace didn't come into the life of your grandparents or your parents or or your life, because each successive generation has to affirm it for themselves. He is saying, remember that apart from God, apart from Christ, the Almighty God would be against us. Apart from God, we would actually be storing up wrath on the day of judgment. Paul piles them all up here. In the the first chapter, he piles up all the blessings that come upon the people of God, those first three sentences. But here he piles up all the shortcomings, all the disabilities of those who are unconverted Gentiles. He talks in verse 12 about them being, being separate from Christ. You were aliens without Christ. And that must mean separate from all those blessings because the Savior, the Messiah, is some peculiar enigmatic figure who died a ridiculous death on one day in history. And Paul says then we would be excluded from citizenship in Israel, aliens from the commonwealths of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. Israel was a nation under God, to be sure, a theocracy, a people to whom God had committed Himself. That kingdom only gets stronger and more glorious under the reign of King Jesus, but Gentiles are far off from all of that, excluded from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world, This was the great disability of Gentiles in Paul's day, even when they didn't know it, although God had revealed Himself in nature and not left them without a witness to Himself, they suppressed that truth and turned instead to idolatry. 
The golden age of the Greeks was past. They had no promised future to look forward to. The gods of Greece and Rome failed to satisfy the hunger of human hearts. They had all these gods, but they had no God because they didn't know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As one commentator summarized it, he said, they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. That's our situation without Christ. That's where we would be if we turned that path that moved away from everything we have in Christ. And these have been the, 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 the great disabilities of Gentiles ever since. Study the whole history of thought ever since, and it's the same. Take God out of the equation, and you have no answers. Civilizations rise, and civilizations fall. Men hypothesize, philosophers theorize, one after the other. But without Christ, verse 12 is true, without hope and without God. Without hope means no sense to life, no purpose today, no future tomorrow, no real answers to the nature of life or the nature of death. What do you say at the grave to a group of people to who are alienated from Jesus Christ? Nothing to sing about, no comfort in the face of life's greatest disappointments. And not only is there alienation and hostility with God, Paul shows there's also hostility among people, with people. Paul talks about that in verse 14. He talks about the, 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 the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility the New King James says, uh, broken down the middle wall of separation. What is it? It's probably an allusion to the fact that in the Jerusalem temple of Paul's day, there was a, a court of the Gentiles with a small wall, a barrier called a balustrade, and beyond that wall, Gentiles were not allowed to pass. The Gentiles could go so far in the Jerusalem temple, the women could go so far Paul might have that partially in mind when he writes, when Luke writes about that, when he writes about this, Paul might have this in mind when he writes here about this dividing wall, and Luke might have that in mind when he writes in the Acts 21 passage. Because look what happens. We read it together. When the people of Jerusalem think that Paul might have taken Trophimus, an Ephesian Gentile, into the temple area, there you see something of the, of the severe separation between Jew and Gentile. These people don't know it, but they think that Paul might have taken Trophimus, an Ephesian Gentile, into the temple city. They don't know that. They just see Paul and, and Trophimus walking on the street, and they say, he must have gone into the temple. Then what happens? The whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar, and they went to begin to kill Paul. Here then, Paul is thinking about the hostility between Jew and Gentile, a tremendous tension of his day, racial prejudice. It was probably problem number one in the early Christian church that Israel is Jewish, entirely Jewish, and how do we do this, they wondered, to bring all these Gentiles into this Jewish church. The idea that Gentiles might be included in the Jewish covenants, and that means people like you and me into the Christian faith, that didn't go out without many discussions and quarrels and hostilities. 
Paul's probably also alluding to that long history of tension between Jew and Gentile when he says in verse 11, Remember that formerly you who were our Gentiles were called uncircumcised. Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision that made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. Remember this, Paul says. And this whole business about who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, there you see the tension between Jew and Gentile. Because what happens, think of David and how he spoke of Goliath, that uncircumcised Philistine, or Saul about his enemies, those uncircumcised fellows. That's life without Christ. Alienation from God, alienation from people, racial prejudice, name-calling, walls of division. Over history, there is a multiplication of walls of division, a Berlin Wall, an iron and bamboo curtain, barriers of race and color, tribe and class. Think of the concrete wall cutting through Israel today as it divides Jews from Palestinians and so many more racial tensions. That's what happens outside of Christ. We don't know of peace. We know of war. We know of enmity. And we just wait until another portion of the world is going to blow up because of this kind of enmity. Divisiveness is a constant characteristic of every community without Christ even to the point where people will go to war and die over some or the other division. That's where we would be if God didn't enter into our lives. And therefore, Paul says, verse 11, remember that you, once Gentiles, were without Christ. And what does he mean when he says remember that? Is he saying they should just keep it in mind? Is he saying they should have some recollection about their past? No, no, you have to think about that word remember against a long history as well. What does it mean when God says to Israel, remember that you were slaves in Egypt? Or when he says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. Or when he says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Or what does it mean even when Job says to God, remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. It means to remember this. The fact that once you were Gentiles, alienated from God, remember this to the depth of your being, to your heart of hearts, that that past that you do remember affects and changes your present. That's what God was talking about again and again, the need for Israel not just to acknowledge a historical fact, namely, for instance, that they were slaves in Egypt, but to remember it to the point that that past fact changes how they live in the present. And so to Paul, he's not just talking about some brain knowledge and intellectual recollection of some facts. He means, let the memory seize you and move you. This was you without Christ. And this is where you would be if you continued on that road. Feel the plight you have been saved from. Ponder the realities you've been delivered from. Unrelenting guilt. Meaningless existence. 
omnipotent justice against you, and even eternal punishment. That was on your path. Lay the Scriptures before you and skip no verses. All have sinned and gone astray, far off, guilty, condemnable. And then as you go through life and see the misery of the world, the physical and emotional suffering of every division, every disturbance, every abnormality, every wickedness, and every deterioration of life. And you see all these divisions of people who are set up against God and therefore set up against each other. As you see all that, say, there but for the absolutely free grace of God go I. Doesn't that make you more aware of a need to share the gospel? If you have no idea that once you were like that, and that's where you'd be without Christ, but once you know the radical division and the radical change, that means you must become more willing to share the gospel with those who are still in the predicament that you were once in. Imagine a man who is shipwrecked with hundreds of other people and they're all floating in the Atlantic Ocean, desperately hanging on for their lives. And then this big cruise ship comes along and picks up this one man and he immediately gets on the ship and he enjoys all the benefits of the cruise ship. He showers and he shaves and he joins all that decadent lifestyle without even turning around for a moment to lend a hand to the rest of the people who are in the water. Why? Because he is so selfish, so in the grips of unbelief, he does not remember. That was him in the water. Imagine the man in Matthew 18 who has just been relieved of a debt of millions of dollars, meets a man who owes him a few hundred dollars, and grabs him by the throat and says, pay what you owe. Why? He doesn't remember. His own past doesn't affect his present. Imagine the whole history of Israel where they are constantly slipping back into the very same patterns that God has delivered them from the past. Why? Because they don't remember what they came out of. To remember is to have such an awareness of the past that you have been spared from that that remembrance shapes and transforms your present as well as your future. You see every day, you see every other sinner differently, you see your whole life differently because you remember. Why does the ascended Lord Jesus Christ complain very strikingly to the church at Ephesus, you have lost your first love? Why is it there is this spiritual inertia that develops as Christianity moves through the generations? When is it that lukewarmness sets in so that the gospel no longer excites? Why is it that there's the temptation to become less and less missional the further we are removed from the day of our conversion or the conversion of our ancestors? when we fail to remember that this is who we once were, and we begin to imagine that we actually merit the positions that we now enjoy, when we fail to remember 
there but for the grace of God go I. There are some things the Scripture tells you to forget. The sins of our youth, the sins and hurts of others. But there is one thing we are commanded to remember and never forget. Namely, what we were before God's love reached down and found us. They go hand in hand. If we remember our former alienation, we also remember the greatness of the grace which forgave us and is transforming us day by day. And that's really our second point, our peacemaking Savior, because it's only through Him. For again, just as in verse 4, in verse 4, remember we have that great exclamation. The whole heart of the gospel is summed up in that. But God, well, here we have another one of those great but sayings. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Dramatic change because of the grace of God. Now in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near. You didn't do this yourself. You were brought near by the grace of God. Jesus Christ, says Paul, is the answer to all this division and all this hostility between Jew and Gentile. He is our peace. And that's what he's talking about, Jew and Gentile. How is the peace? Well, Paul seems to have three things in mind. First of all, Paul refers in verse 15 to the laws, commandments, and regulations. The law of commandments contained in ordinances. The reference seems to be especially to the ceremonial law, to circumcision, to the sacrifices, dietary regulations, and rules about cleanness and uncleanness which governed all relationships, all those Old Testament laws. All of this erected a serious barrier between Jew and Gentile, but all of this was in a very real sense abolished in the life and death of Jesus Christ when He offered Himself up in, as a supreme sacrifice. Paul was not saying that the law was abolished as a moral guide, in chapter 6, verse 2, he even quotes one of the Ten Commandments. But what is abolished is the law as a set of regulations and rules that excludes Gentiles. Notice that Paul says in verse 15 that he abolished it in his flesh. The problem had very much to do with the flesh of Jew and Gentile. The solution is in the flesh of Jesus. He takes the hostility of both Jews and Gentiles into Himself, and when He died, that hostility died. Secondly, Paul is thinking of all the sins of all those Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are brought near, he says in verse 13, through the blood of Jesus. It's through Him and His atonement on the tree of the cross that both Jew and Gentile have something amazing, namely access to the one Father by the one Spirit. Only because Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the law in His life and in His death bore all the consequences of our disobedience do we have reconciliation and access to Him. Disobedient Jews and disobedient Gentiles through faith, by grace, can come forth because every manner of obedience has been offered in the person and life of Christ. 
Christ Jesus. And thirdly, Paul says, Christ did something else that's amazing. And he actually uses the concept of creation to describe it. He says in verse 15 that Christ brought Jew and Gentile together by a sovereign act of creation. He created in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Why is he our peace? Because he makes peace between Jew and Gentile. He erases these divisions like nobody else ever does. He takes these two groups of humanity, this problem number one in the Christian church, and he, he made them parts of himself, and he makes a new single entity out of them. Jews and Gentiles are incorporated into Christ And when he is raised to a new life, a new being comes into existence, one in which people are one with Christ and one with each other. What does that mean? Well, that has all kinds of consequences. Think of Acts 21. Think of what Paul would say. Paul would say, and so what? Even if I did bring Trophimus, I never brought Trophimus into the temple, but so what if I did? Do you not understand the full significance of the death of Jesus Christ by which he abolished the the separation between Jew and Gentile? Thinking of you and me, it means as well, we too, Gentiles, can actually be included and are included in the life of Christ and the church and the new world that he is making. Without this, we would be forever excluded if you're not Jewish. But because of this, because he makes peace through the blood of his cross and creates one new man, we can be part of this. And that means now the church can be truly missional. Putting forth the message to those far and to those near, making disciples of all the nations. It means all racial prejudice is banned and gone forever in the church of Christ. White or black, Hispanic or Chinese, it matters not a whit because this is where we come from out of the body of Jesus Christ and this is where we are going into a world in which the church will be forever many-colored, many-tongued, and multiracial. Get used to it, a multiracial church, because in the end we will be in a multiracial church because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because He abolished all of those divisions. This new unity through and in Christ does even more than span the Jew-Gentile divide. Colossians 3, here there is no Greek or Jew, there is no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3 verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
It doesn't mean that all differentiation is removed. Men remain men and women remain women. Uh, Canadians remain Canadians and Koreans remain Koreans. But all inequality is abolished. It's unfitting for the people of God. It's unfitting for who they are in Christ. It's unfitting for what God does in Christ. There is a new unity, a tremendous unity in the body of Jesus Christ. And the moment you stop and you say, I will speak to him because he's white, but I won't speak to him because he's black or he's Chinese or whatever, you have failed to realize the depth of the gospel and the life and the death of Jesus Christ our Lord. And you fail to realize where we're going. Multiracial Catholic Church of Christ. And so we see thirdly our Christian present. What is the point? Well, Paul says there are consequences. He says in verse 19, now therefore, we teach the students, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what is it therefore? Well, it's therefore because it's going to draw some consequences. What are the consequences? There are three consequences. It shapes the church. Verse 19, therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are no longer foreigners and aliens. In other words, you are no longer excluded from Israel. The word citizen suggests that he's talking about them as members of the kingdom of God. Strikingly, at the time that Paul writes this, there is a kingdom called Rome with all its glory. And, this shatter, and there is this shattered kingdom of Israel as well. But the death of Christ is such that not only do all those who believe in Him become one, they become jointly members of another kingdom, not Roman, not Jewish, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, not international and interracial, even more splendid and more enduring than any earthly empire. That's a consequence of one new man in Christ. And Paul rejoices in that even more than he rejoices in his Roman citizenship. And we know that he was proud of that. Here they belong, members of the, of the kingdom of God. And not only are they citizens of this kingdom, but Paul says also in, in verse 19 that they are members of the household of God. What does that mean? It means they are part of the family of God. This is the consequence of, 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 of being in this family of God. We have all kinds of brothers and sisters because in Christ they're brought not only into one kingdom, they're brought into one family. One of the great privileges of the redeemed, said Paul back in 1 verse 5, is that we are adopted to be God's sons and daughters through Christ. One of the things he will glory in later is that there is one God and Father of us all. But notice it's a consequence of Christ's sacrifice. You don't get to choose who's your brother or your sister. In your own family, you didn't get to choose your brother or your sister. In the family of God, you don't get to choose this either. Jesus Christ does. The sovereign grace of God does this, makes this choice. 
It's determined in Christ. All that's left for you and me is to greet and accept each other as people who are in God's kingdom and God's family. Greet them as fellow citizens, brothers and sisters, and humbly take your place. What's amazing is not that they are there. What's amazing is that you and I may be there. And there's a third privilege, a third status that you and they receive. Verses 20 through 22. Uh, in Him the whole body, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the church, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There are three consequences. You're part of a kingdom, you're part of a family, and you're part of a temple. A holy temple in the Lord. It's striking when you think about it. Not only do God's people in Christ become a new nation, a new family, they become a new temple. Think about that as well. Well, Paul writes this. He's writing to the people of Ephesus. And back in Ephesus, there's a glorious temple dedicated to, uh, to Art Artemis. Acts 19. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world with its statues of this goddess. While Paul is writing this, there is a magnificent temple over there in Jerusalem. It still stands, rebuilt by Herod the Great, barricading itself against the Gentiles, and now barricading itself against God. It had been the dwelling of God for centuries, but now when Paul writes, it is irrelevant. It's irrelevant long before the Romans come and destroy it. Why? Two temples, one pagan and the other Jewish, each designated as a divine residence, but both empty of the living God. They might come from far and wide to worship in these temples. They might be seven wonders of the world, but they are empty of the living God. And if they're empty of the living God, they're without purpose. Because now there is a new temple, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It is His new society, His redeemed people scattered throughout the world. They are now His home on this earth. This is your privilege to be a temple of the living God. It rises, it grows to become a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you too, Paul says, in verse 22, you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirits. Pay attention to the work of the Spirit because this is what He's doing. But the thing to notice, brothers and sisters, to just drive this point a little farther home, is that each one of these steps is deliberately more intense than the one before it. There's first of all a kingdom with a king and its citizens. And the king must live in a country with his people. When a king is separate from his people, there are problems, no doubt. Similarly, there is a family with its father and its children and its mother. And a father lives under the same roof with his children. And when the father doesn't live under the same roof, there are problems. And there is a temple. And God actually lives in this temple he lives in us. He lives in you. It never becomes more intense than that. There's a progression of intensity, intensiveness, let's call it. Right? There's a kingdom, and that's wonderful. 
but it's more intense to have a family, and it's even more intense to have God actually living in you. And so what you see then is the exact opposite of what happens when we are outside of Christ. When we're outside of Him, there is disunity, there is division, there is hatred, there is hostility. Look at the world, read the news, you can see it all over the place. Why would you bring anybody into that kind of a world? But when we are in Him, there is a new safe haven into which everyone can be brought and everyone can find refuge. You can actually become missional because this is a glorious place. There's this intensivity to it. The kingdom, the family, the temple of God. This is the place where division is gone and there's unity and there's glorious things. That's why the most powerful force in the whole world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's more powerful than how your country or your culture has shaped you. It's more powerful than how your family has shaped you. Remember this. To be non-Christian is to be driven to disunity and enmity. You will be alienated from God, but you'll be alienated from all kinds of other people as well. But to be Christian is to be called to deep relationships, to deep involvement in Christian community. All who are shaped by the gospel are bound to each other more powerfully than they are shaped by any other force in their lives. We are one. We are united to each other. And it all happens not because you are such a wonderful person and you are such a wonderful person it all happens because of Christ. He is our peace, says Paul. How does He become our peace? Well, think about it for a moment. Think of it this way. He was the king. He was the son of David, but His own people didn't recognize Him. They treated Him as the lowest of all citizens. They said, Israel is better off without of Him. And so they excommunicated Him out of Israel. And Jesus Christ, He was the Son, the kingdom, the family. He was the Son. But they said, here is the Son. Let us kill Him. The Son is treated like an alien, a foreigner, so that we could be brought in. The Son forsaken even by the Father, forsaken, defellowshipped, so that we might be brought in, cursed that we might be blessed. And He was the temple. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. He is the cornerstone in whom the whole body is joined together and rises. Remember then, remember what you once were. Remember, appreciate what you are now. This is the greatest of all privileges you can possibly have in your life. Enjoy it. There is no place like this. And remember how you got here by grace and by grace alone. And therefore, bring them all in. If you can get here by grace, they can come here by grace. If you can get here by the power of Christ, they can come by the power of Christ from all nations to the praise of God. Amen.